Welcome to the New Books Network. The political left has long faced a tension regarding its universalistic commitments and those to the nation it inhabits. The dilemma is captured succinctly in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen that articulated leftist or progressive devotion to both man in the historic collective sense of human beings, as well as to the fellow members of a particular political community at the time of the French Revolution. That older tension persists at the same time that the left has increasingly today become associated with identity politics and such phenomena. So how can the left square this circle between universalism and its own national community? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Emmanuel Dalemule, who is uh, currently Marie Curie postdoctoral researcher at the Complutense University in Madrid and research fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy of the Geneva Graduate Institute. He previously conducted research at the Catholic University of Louvain, Université Catholique de Louvain, uh, the London School of Economics and Political Science, and Boston University, among others. He's published extensively on the entanglements between nationalism, minorities, human rights, and the welfare state. His book, The Nationalism of the Rich, Discourses and Strategies of Separatist, Separatist Parties in Catalonia, Flanders, Northern Italy, and Scotland was published by Rutledge in 2017, and it examines how identity and nationalism have influenced the legitimacy of welfare and economic redistribution in Western Europe during the last quarter of the 20th century. He's joined by his co-author on a recent paper addressing the tension between universalism and community in progressive thought, Ivan Serrano Balaguer. Ivan Serrano is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Open University of Catalonia, uh, the UOC. He was previously a postgraduate researcher at Queen Mary College of the University of London. Uh, He has a PhD in political science from the Universitat Pompeu Fabra. Uh, My pronunciation there is probably pretty shaky, but you're probably familiar with it. He has worked in the intersection between empirical and theoretical aspects of nationalism and territorial politics. And he's a member of TurboLab, an interdisciplinary research group combining urban, territorial, digital, and environmental studies. Thanks so much for being with us today, Emmanuel Dalemule and Ivan Serrano. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great to have you with us. So let's start at what I think of as the beginning of this problem, at least in the modern world. And I've already referred to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. uh, That was the chief manifesto, one might say, of the French Revolution uh, and set out two potentially conflicting sets of commitments, but didn't 
in my reading, didn't really seem to be aware of the tension between universalism and community or nation uh, when they set those that that document down in words. So what do those sort of framers not understand about what what they were doing? Um, well, I'll probably start uh, since I'm the historian between the two. Um, uh, I think you're right. Uh, I think at the time there was not much of a perception that there was a contradiction uh, between these two terms. And I think we need to keep in mind two factors that can help uh, answer this question. The first is that the reason why the declaration mentions the man and the citizen is that the mindset, at least of the early revolutionaries, assumed that all men would be citizen of, citizens of a specific political community that uh, based its legitimacy on the defense of the natural, equal and universal rights of its members. So, <clears throat> in other words, in a kind of modular fashion, each man would be a member of a political community and each political community would strive to defend the, the basic rights of, of, these, of its citizens and men. And in this framework, there is not much of a contradiction between the two, um, especially precisely because the legitimacy of the community is based on the defense of those rights. Well, today we know that this is not so, that uh, there is a tension and uh, there are contradictions. But at the time, also, we need to understand that popular sovereignty was a pretty new thing and there was little concrete experience of how it would play out in practice. And also, that's the second factor I would um, I would stress, is that the universalism uh, that of these uh, revolutionaries um, was actually quite limited, even in the community of citizens itself, um, that is, although the French Revolution introduced a radically new concept of political community based on equality, their understanding of equality was mediated by old assumptions about who ought to be equal. And a whole series of groups, men, slaves, populations under colonial domination, the poor, were excluded or only partially or only temporarily included uh, within the reach of the new revolutionary rights and especially political rights. So this was contradictory, and the excluded groups actually used this contradiction later to claim the expansion of rights. But in many ways, it is not surprising, at least not for historians, because um, many of the innovations were already so radical that uh, you know it's also quite normal that some old assumptions somehow lingered on. Yeah. Right. Ivan, uh, any additional yeah, I, thoughts? I would add on, on, on the same lines that Emmanuel is emphasizing as, a, as an historian and, and I would uh, see here two different... No, in, in order to understand and to answer or reflect upon uh, your question, I would say that there are two different aspects that from the academy uh, are needed to take into consideration. No? The, the first one is, is, is to consider what the actors involved at that time, uh, which were their assumptions, uh, their own rationalizations and arguments and so on. No? And then we study how they frame no, in their own uh, intellectual discourse all, let's say, these political programs. And on the other hand is the, is the study from our contemporary perspective of, of, of how these process, uh, processes were developed no, at that time. No? In, in this sense, I, what we witnessed during, the, let's say, the, the 19th century is that this, this development of the modern nation state, which has been widely uh, studied from many different perspectives, and it somehow it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of normative project, even though not always uh, explicitly stated, but it, it's a sort of normative pro, uh, 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 project where 
uh, we find this sort of conflation between the idea of national belonging and political rights. No? The, the main project, as we've seen backwards no, from, from our contemporary perspective, is that uh, no, in a sort of teleological way that the nation state eventually would manage as, 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 as the two sides of, of, of the coin no, of political uh, communities. On the one hand, some sense of common belonging to the nation. And on the other hand, this belonging to the nation was associated to a number of rights that, that citizens enjoyed. And then all the contradictions and tension uh, emerge here. No? Going back to the question of, of what these framers were, had in mind at, the, at that time, I, I always, and this is a sort of recommendation that more and more uh, I, I'm more convinced about, is that we should uh, be, we shouldn't forgotten to read the classics uh, by ourselves. No? And this is something that uh, more and more I recommend uh, my, even my, my students. No? Don't follow what I tell you in class, but go straight to to the library and pick up the books no and in this sense i always uh, think of, of two of two very uh, relevant thinkers of, of that time which have uh, which which still has today have today a, a, a strong influence in the way we think no which is uh, rousseau on the one hand and stuart mill on, on the other and when they were reflecting upon these notions of, of you know, in the case of Stuart Mill talking about the, the principle of nationality as the founding element no, of, of, of a legitimate government, and talking about this principle of nationality, I always uh, uh, remember how if you keep following the next uh, sections of, of, his, of his work, uh, after he defends and, and he establishes the principle of, na of nationality in the sense that each government should follow the national lines of of, of a territory, he adds that no, and I and I quote literally have it uh, I write it down here. Uh, experience proves that it is possible for one nationality to merge and to be absorbed in another. And when it was originally an inferior and more backward portion of the human race, this absorption is greatly to its advantage. No, and, and he and he goes on. And the same applies to Rousseau when he talks about uh, the necessity of the common good and, a new, uh, and the polity and so on, that he also adds that it's a necessary condition that this community, that this polity developed a nationally educated with a particular legislation that uh, results in the state promoting a homogeneous national identity through education, through common values and, and traditions and so on. And this is a necessary condition for such a polity to succeed. So this makes me think, no? first of all, and most importantly, that students uh, listening to this podcast go straight to the sources and then make your own interpretation of, 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 of classic thinkers. But the second is that maybe is the way we read these classical authors from our contemporary times that we assume certain things. And maybe because they were, a, let's say, a... a an homogeneous uh, group of people, no white, uh, uh, well-established, uh, uh, affluent people. Maybe they share some homogeneous trends, no, in traits in, in, in the in the way of working and, and thinking. But also that they were more aware about these tensions that we often assume. No, maybe it's simply that they didn't want to go very deeply into into these into these elements because because they had a sort of normative project in mind. Right. Well, it's uh, always a good idea to encourage students to go back to the classics because that's where so much of this conversation really comes from. Um, and as we talked about the French Revolution, of course, I'm reminded of another classic, uh, which was the immediate response of Edmund Burke, 
to the universalistic kind of claims and character of the French Revolution. Of course, as you know, he basically said, well, I've never heard of this man in general. What is that? You know, I know about the uh, Englishman and the Frenchman and whoever else he identified exactly. Um, and I mean, this raises this problem about, um, you know, for conservatives, it's not really necessarily a problem, it seems to me. Or for Burke, you know, the whole idea just didn't exist, really. I mean, the only rights anybody had were the rights of the country that granted them rights. And there's a kind of an echo of this in Hannah Arendt later on, right? I mean, there's this notion she articulates that, um, you know, man is not, or whatever, however she says it exactly, although she used sexist language too, you know, man is not uh, born equal, he's made equal, or, or people are made equal by the states in, under which they live. Um, so maybe you could say a little bit about how that works and, you know, how conservatives, I mean, conservatives today don't really have to deal with universalistic commitments. I mean, to some extent, of course, they do, given the prevalence of human rights ideas in the post-World War II period. But at some level, they don't, they make no apology for being, you know, basically concerned about the people of their own country. So how does that sort of situation work? How, how What's the distance we've traveled from the French Revolution? Um, I don't know, Ivan, you want to go first? or? <clears throat> no, uh, it, it, actually, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting how if, if, if we focus on this, let's say, traditional uh, scholars uh, that today we associate more with progressive ideals, no, but we should establish and, should, and we should revisit probably as well these other conservatives and, and, and uh, that, that were also witnessing at that time from a different perspective, of course, all these new developments that they were living. No? In, in, my, in my own work, I, I had an interest on, on, on Herder, which is one of the anti-enlightenment, the father, no? as Isaiah Berlin said, no? the fathers of the, of the culturalist approach to the nation. But again, when you read him directly, you make you can have a better context on 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 which were the problems that they were identifying, no? And in the sense, uh, probably a new reading of of these other intellectual trends more associated to the conservative uh, thought could uh, should be also interested beyond the common wisdom, no? The conventional wisdom we have about this, this, no? And I think your your point here is is nicely addressed to this revisiting no, this and, and playing with them again, with their ideas again, with these classical authors. Right. Emmanuel? Well, if I can add something. Well, first, uh, I think Anna Arendt was, uh, like Burke was literally not really uh, agreeing with the idea of natural rights. Uh, Anna Arendt was more um, skeptical that it would be possible to create a community that extends to the entire world and defends those rights. And, and she was rather betting on the nation state as the best although, or the, the, the least worst, worst, op, worst option. But, uh, but uh, I am definitely, um, I agree uh, with you, uh, John, that uh, it is much more difficult for uh, people who have universalist commitment to try to square the circle between you know, uh, those universalist commitments and, and, and more communitarian commitments. And I don't really know what how to square that circle. If I had the answer, I would probably be rich. But um, I would say that we have gone a little bit uh, farther than the time of the French Revolution or even just uh, Burke. Uh, Burke uh, um, I think um, 
my uh, understanding, and I think is that understanding also of uh, quite a few authors, especially from the 1990s, there is much more awareness in political philosophy and democratic theory about the uh, this uh, this um, this tension. Um, I think there is no easy fix and no architectonic illusion, uh, and and. It, it being open and honest about this tension and the possibility and actually the fact that probably there is no real way to completely resolve it we can just try to soothe it and to make it more manageable i think is the best uh, way to go and i think the reason why is that is so is because equality is an inherently uh, ambiguous concept and creates tensions between different understandings and equally legitimate understandings of equality. So, uh, I mean, you need you need uh, just only to think about um, to, about the you know equality of treatment and equality of outcomes between individual equality and group equality, uh, or even equality and sameness. Um, so, yes, for people that are Committed to, committed to equality beyond the boundaries of the nation state, uh, we should be aware of this tension and try to not to uh, conveniently sweep it under the carpet. And more concretely, that would probably mean taking up the challenge uh, uh, and and try to justify, if possible, if possible, the legitimacy of existing banal ways of social closure. For instance, in the paper with Ivan, we precisely address in part this thing because um, we talk about the banal nationalism of uh, the Spanish Socialist Party that both internally in the way uh, it treated Catalan demands for a referendum on self-determination and externally, uh, for instance, in legitimating again in almost mindless ways the acceptance of tight immigration policies, um, we address this um, this uh, attempt to not to deal with this issue to, with this tension, but to actually practically uh, implement it, and and yeah. So I think this is not uh, this is something that at least scholars should analytically uh, do, and probably normative philosophy uh, philosopher address from a normative perspective. Right. <clears throat> Interesting. So. Um, you know, we've been focusing basically on this problem at the national or international level. I mean, how people in one country should view, you know, themselves and themselves vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the rest of the world, essentially. But, uh, you know, as you know, there's also been a kind of development in recent decades, basically, you know, uh, that goes under the term identity politics that has tended to make a progressive, a would-be progressive value of, you know, the emphasis on particular groups defined, however, you know, gender, race, uh, ethnic, etc. kinds of terms. And, I mean, is that something that we can sort of uh, embrace? Is that a, a, a sort of departure from the universalism of the Universal Declaration? Or how do we manage? I mean, it presents this tension that we've been talking about, you know, from an internal perspective. And, uh, you know, in American politics, it's having, you know, I would say very problematic kinds of consequences. Uh, and, and you end up with this situation where the Republicans seem to be the universalists. And, uh, you know, I wonder how you would sort of, uh, what, what you would say about that development. Uh, yeah, again, departing from, from the idea that you know, if we had this uh, a, a clear uh, set of, 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 of solutions, we would be, I don't know if rich, but maybe more <laughs> famous that, no? than now. Uh, 
the, our departing point, and, and this is why we come up with this label of, of talking about universalism within, the, this tension is, is something that is inherent to, uh, to the development of this, of this, of this uh, normative uh, projects no? about universalistic values. Because the, the sort the kind of paradox is that all these universalist values were developed within a certain uh, uh, a certain uh, institution such as the nation state. So this this is not a contradiction as such, but rather the the very origin of all the questions we are discussing today. You no, know? how to expand this set of morally desirable valuables into a larger uh, scale? You no, know? and the question here arises is. Is the current, the existing institutions, this is basically the, the most successful political actor of the last centuries uh, around the world, which is the nation state, are the development of these values necessarily go hand in hand with this particular institutional artifact that we have developed in, in, during the last centuries? Or, or, or can we imagine different ways of articulating or better ways of articulating this? No? It, going to the point of, of identity uh, uh, of identity politics, uh, one of the interesting questions, and, and, and Emmanuel said something very relevant, uh, I think, uh, uh, before, which is probably during the 90s, the, the, the scholar community discussed extensively about the debate, for instance, between multiculturalism and interculturalism and, and so on. And with this sort of emergence, or, or at least that we have realized or phrased or framed this, this, uh, this uh, contemporary political uh, debates around the, the moving the focus towards identity politics, there is a, a, a nice uh, paradox here in the sense that identity politics, uh, we could, one way of seeing it is, is, is that identity politics appear or emerge where when the, the formal equality of nation states reveals that still exists a lot of disadvantaged groups, people that cannot uh, uh, that cannot mm, effectively realize these formal opportunities, no, in the legal frameworks, and this is something that we were discussing with Emmanuel the, the other day. But it seems that this uh, this is accompanied with the emergence of of, of another general of another general uh, label, which is the neoliberal paradigm no, that we are uh, witnessing during the last uh, 30, 40 years. And it seems that this form of identity politics follows the scheme that fits into the neoliberal narrative, which is particular interests that are articulated, promoted, no, uh, uh, in, in, let's say, in, in a, from a stakeholder perspective, from a stakeholder logic. What does it mean that if all interests are articulated from an interest group perspective, the, nece the necessary building of a common sense, no, of a common uh, idea of the public good in the Russonian terms, is somehow abandoned. And then we see more and more fragmentation. No? By trying to adapt into this ideological and hegemonic environment, it seems that somehow, or sometimes at least, the question of identity politics is... Uh, reinforcing this sort of paradigm no and maybe this is the trap that we are not able to 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 escape from a let's say normative uh, uh, reflections no? I think that this is one of the of the points that your your question and the way you frame the question suggests to me no? which is an interesting blind spot that we are not able to identify and therefore we cannot escape by uh, building some normative desirable alternatives 
Right. I mean, there is this way in which um, this has this the development of identity politics has seemed to go hand in hand with a kind of abandonment of the working class. Now, you know, there were lots of questions within sort of Marxist traditions, Marxist groups uh, about, you know, the likely future of the working class. Was it really going to be a revolutionary, you know, actor and all these kinds of things? Um, but it does seem as though, um, you know, there has been this kind of bifurcation between these two groups in the United States, but also, uh, you know, I think more or less widely through Europe. I mean, Thomas Piketty has kind of developed this notion recently about, you know, a kind of Brahmin left, uh, a situation in which the uh, the left has increasingly become higher higher educated group. And if you regard, you know, less educated people as working class, then, you know, they've gone in a different direction. And it's not just in the United States. So I guess, you know, the question is, is there any way to kind of restitch that coalition, so to speak? Uh, I mean, Zygmar Gabriel, the former vice chancellor of Germany, who I just happened to be in an event with, you know, articulated this very same kind of analysis of what's been going on in German and European politics more generally, and of course, in the United States. I mean, it's become in a way the sort of common sense of how we think about what's happened politically in our kinds of societies. And so I guess the question is, you know, is there any way to sort of square that particular circle and put those, that coalition back together? Mm, well, in a progressive yeah, context, I, I mean, the Republicans in the United States are, as you may know, you know, increasingly benefiting from the departure of working class whites, especially, but increasingly Latinos and even working class blacks, you know, into their into their party, into their base. So uh, that obviously can't bode well for what's going on on the left. Yeah, and so is the populist and radical right in Europe. So, I mean, I know the European context better than the American one, but the, the process is very similar in both places. And I also think Piketty is quite right. I mean, Piketty says something that a number of other authors have already observed before uh, and simply provided new empirical evidence to support the idea. Uh, and that, as you said precisely, that since the 1970s, electoral support from the mainstream left has shifted from the working class to the so-called social cultural professional. And, and you know, the populist of radical right has become the new party of the working class. I would say working class in uh, <clears throat> inverted commas because it's not exactly the same working class that we uh, that was supporting the socialist or social democratic parties in the 70s that has undergone massive change. And I think, as you mentioned, also is very important here to remember that the main line of fracture is uh, the level of education. And here I think it's important to mention that, yes, the mainstream left has become the uh, party of the highly educated, but that doesn't translate always into people of, you know, uh, middle class or higher middle class. I mean, you need just think of a precarious postdoctoral researcher or, you know, graduates that come out from uh, the art academy that not necessarily all the time have, uh, although education is a powerful uh, factor shaping life chances. It doesn't always correlate with a uh, higher income. But in general, it is true that the lower educated and also uh, the, the most poorer, um, or at least some of the poorer um, uh, strata of many societies in Europe and North America are now voting massively for the populist and radical right, except for ethnic minorities that tend still. So this is another uh, important point to, to remember. Um, 
I mean, uh, it is uh, it is hard to 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 say whether um, uh, how we can square the circle. I think um, one element uh, to take into account is that it is not just about identity politics for the populist and radical right. What I'm, I mean, of course, they um, mobilize a lot around issues of immigration, but since at least the 2000s, they have also been developing a, a quite simplistic but very powerful uh, social agenda. I mean, uh, you have certainly heard of uh, welfare chauvinism, and this is basically the, the main platform around which they um, build uh, their social proposals. And, and they are basically, they're basically um, gather support uh, also, and I would say in, uh, in uh, great part around the idea that they are going to reserve uh, welfare for uh, the natives and also jobs uh, for uh, the natives. So in that respect, I think there is a hunch of what uh, could be done. I mean, there is certainly uh, a part of the electorate that is uh, uh, asking for uh, protection from uh, some uh, negative consequence of uh, globalization or further competition, financialization. There are a series of you know, processes that have a lot of um, positive effects, but also some negative effects, and probably trying to address those points, which is not easy because there is not ma- much, a lot of fiscal space and some of these issues are very difficult to address. But instead of engaging in cultural wars with the, with the, with the populist and radical right or with part of the Republican Party, I think a more promising way is to try to uh, address those anxieties and those economic uh, issues. Ivan? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, actually, on, on adding to, to, to Emmanuel's comments on, on, on the radical right, a, a case in point is how many of these parties are addressing, addressing contemporary uh, challenges such as climate change and environment policies. No, it's where uh, they, they combine this sort of traditionalist view of the environment as something part of the national landscape, and so the part of the of the foundations of, of this organism's conception of the nation. So we need to preserve the environment because it's part of our essence as a nation, and this is appropriated by these uh, political movements. No? And on the other hand, from a progressive uh, uh, perspective, obviously this is a key challenge to be addressed, no? all, all the shortcomings of globalization, uh, uh, of uh, uh, climate change, even uh, digital capitalism and, and so on. Then the question is how to, uh, let's say, revisit or reappropriate these, these elements from this uh, broader perspective where maybe the some dynamics you know, that as i mentioned before about identity politics as we can uh, as we can conceive of them or, or as we have observed some developments during the last years maybe in a sort of disadvantage in front of these more simplistic uh, discourses appealing to certain elements you know? uh, connecting to 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 the to to, to the questions about piquet you know and, and his contribution uh, i think uh, piquet offers uh, 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 let's say a great compilation of, of historical data, and this has uh, some obvious advantages in the sense of having a broader picture of of, of big processes. No, as as as, as Charles Tilly would, would say, no huge this huge process of change. But at the same time, we, we need to be aware of some of its disadvantages, uh, uh, or, or we need to be. A, Cautious about what uh, consequences do we uh, infer from that? No, first of all, that obviously uh, uh, 
he's contributing or, or confirming many many topics as as Emmanuel mentioned about that has been long studied for many years in other fields, no? And 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 again, no, a good uh, a good advice for all of us is to be aware of the contributions in different fields of social science, no? Otherwise, we are we eventually uh, always make the joke about no this idea of that economists discovers uh, something that anthropologists or sociologists or political scientists have been discussing during the last uh, three centuries no? and 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 the other and the other point here is that probably this big perspective with with certain data and focusing on the case of, of education uh, another question would be of course and this has been also widely discussed in, in the field of sociology, for instance, and many other fields. Uh, the idea, uh, the, the contents and the interpretation of education is not the same today as it was in the 1930s or 1940s, or let alone if we think about early 20th century, where the difference were between being uh, literate or not, and only upper classes received high uh, uh, education. Today, of course, the role of the education is completely different because... Uh, uh, university degrees are a common, uh, a common, uh, are commonly accessed not only by the upper classes, and this connects also with Emmanuel's comments of, of thinking about, for instance, precarious uh, postdoctoral uh, researchers or young scholars in the early steps of their careers, which is a big problem, of course, as we all know, we have in the in the in the academia. But then, uh, this this sort of of great assumptions uh, forget some classical uh, discussions that no and particularly in our field that this connection between the individual and and, and the community no? and and of course there, there are some tensions which are uh, which can be seen as inherently uh, part of this debate because the the, the individual no and and uh, you you quote uh, before uh, uh, Anna Aaron on this topic no it's it's society that made us in that makes us individuals and this, of course, has some connections with with, uh, with theoretical debate about natural law and so on. But if we cannot think, if we if we do not bear in mind the fact that individuals and their sense of belonging, both legally, let's say, and in the sense of uh, of personal identification, is a key part of the human condition. Individuals need to be uh, part, no, need to, to have this this sense of belonging to their political community, and this legitimizes a number of collective decisions, such as redistributive policies and so on. We cannot scale, we cannot square a, a circle, because a circle is a circle and a square is a square. No? So, and, and, and probably this way of seeing, sometimes with big uh, statements uh, from from from, from uh, rock stars in the academy, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if they had uh, they have the capacity of focusing the, the agenda, but I'm not sure that this is a, 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 a something that will be fruitful in the in the long term. No, so so I, this is always the same the same feeling I have when when talking about these big names, no, with big discoveries because they have access to a wide set of, of data. In the case, in our case, and from our perspective, uh, from 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 uh, nationalism studies, I always think about. Uh, one of the of the references in the field and the famous definition by by Benedict Anderson about the nation, no, that that he coined the the, the famous term about imagined communities, no, in the sense that the nation is a, is an imagined community because we imagine this is real, this is something real that goes beyond the face to face connections that establish all ways of identifying with the group. But at the same time, this idea, if we keep reading, uh, we also see that it's imagined as inherently limited. 
And this is, if we connect the idea that nations and nationalism are uh, in, the, and the, in, in the development of the nation state, they also add some universal values in their, in their, in their normative projects. But at the same time, we imagine this institution as limited. We can scale it somehow, at least in, as an experimental thought, how we can scale up all these positive values into a, let's say, global environment without going into <coughs> the necessity of building or imagining new new forms of institution. You know? So, no, this sort of, of I mean, of, of elements, I think we should rephrase sometimes the questions we, we pose to ourselves. Got it. So, I mean, maybe to wind up, um, you know, I think, I think part of what's, you know, puzzling or paradoxical about the phenomena that we're talking about is that, you know, as you were saying, Yvonne, the, you know, the educated used to be basically the dominant class and nobody else really. Uh, and that's changed very much over time. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, in a way, that's the way the sl- the pie is sliced up now, so to speak. Uh, the electoral, um, you know, predispositions of the educated, which in the United States is generally referred to as you know people with a BA and undergraduate degree, um, and versus those who don't, and that they are increasingly becoming, you know, sort of mutually unrecognizable to each other. But it's also a phenomenon of you know, the privileged being, uh, you know, apparently the progressives. And I think that's, you know, th- that's a bit puzzling, right? I mean, it's a little bit odd that uh, what now is in some ways sort of the dominant class is also the, you know, at least understands itself as, you know, progressive and humanistic and all these kinds of things. And so, um, you know, I wonder how you think that's going to work itself out. And this will have to be our last question, by the way. Okay. Well, um, I would uh, I would say that if we go back to you know the idea that um, Piketty, but also others uh, defended of well, Piketty used the expression of the Brahmin left, but others talk about the social cultural professional. In any case, um, about the uh, impact of education, uh, I think there there is a split. So there you know there are uh, graduates more in technical sciences and 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 business uh, management that tend to be uh, much more on the center right. So liberal conservatives, of course, not much less populist than radical right, but but they tend to be um, let's say less progressive. So there is still a bifurcation between the the highly educated. And but yes, it is true that um, that there is uh, an important part of the highly educated that used to be the you know the um, let's say the privileged classes uh, also more conservative and they, they are not. In a way, um, some point out, uh, and I think they are correct uh, that there has always been a part of these classes that wanted to some extent to. Um, to turn society into a more uh, progressive, a more uh, solid, solidarity. I'm mean, sorry, a more um, equal society. I mean, socialist movements were, uh, in many cases, led by uh, 
members of the bourgeoisie who wanted to uh, that were uh, concerned for the plight of the of the labor classes. So um, in that respect, we can really need uh, a process that has just uh, taken another dimension uh, in uh, in scale, but but it is not as different uh, in many ways. However, what is different, and again, uh, I don't, I don't know how to square that circle, but it is uh, certainly a fact that a part of what used to be the working class, and you, I, again, uh, using in inverted commas, uh, is no longer voting for uh, progressive parties. So, in that respect, that split didn't used to be there before, and now it is. And again, I think to me the solution is uh, for uh, parties of the mainstream left to go back to socioeconomic policies rather than trying to mimic um, uh, populist and radical right parties or even just uh, liberal and conservative parties uh, with their uh, focus on identity. And I think, for instance, uh, in the Democratic Party, some have at least have uh, begun to talk about this. I, I remember reading uh, an op-ed on The Economist at the beginning of October by two representatives of the Democratic Party, Ro Khanna and Zach Walls, who were exactly talking about the need for the Democratic Party to address the issues of um, of uh, the industrialized places in America that have been hit hard by the industrialization. They were talking about, for instance, uh, Iowa and Ohio and try to uh, promote pro-employment policies and investment in infrastructure in these places to try to make those places um, uh, work again and, and uh, address uh, the issues of unemployment and, and the, the, the industrialization and economic insecurity that those constituencies are, are experiencing. So uh, I, would, I would point in that direction, although I don't see identity politics um, or culture wars rather than identity politics uh, ending anytime soon. I think they are still, they will still with us for a while. I think that's right. But uh, some final words, Yvonne? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I cannot see uh, how to square this circle, no, if, 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 if we use this, this imaginary. Um, and my, my, let's say my theoretical concern is, is that probably the external factors explaining which kind of political uh, entities are we heading uh, to, uh, towards in the, in the, in the near future uh, I see some elements that these these uh, aspects of reinforcing uh, nationalism and and let's say going back to strong and more homogeneous uh, tensions to build not to sustain these political communities are not going to disappear in the next uh, future. Particularly thinking about the challenges we are facing as human as humankind, no? as as in. Uh, Concerning particularly all, 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 all the elements referred to, to, to climate change, uh, natural resources, and, 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 and all that. And I think for us as scholars, we should uh, focus uh, many of our efforts in, in see how to live with this tension, not that we call not this universalism within, but, but this tension between the universal and the, and the particular in, I don't know which ways, I don't know how, but I think we should keep into account this complexity needs to be faced of and needs to be part of our research agenda in the in the near future because it's something very challenging, very present in a in a for our societies to have some sort of desirable, uh, meaningful ends for 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 human beings to develop as such. Well, thank you for winding things up with that uh, call to arms, so to speak. Uh, always, I think, a valuable thing to call our attention to these kinds of problems. So I was very glad to come across your work. 
Uh, uh, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank uh, Emmanuel Dalemule at the Complutense University of Madrid and Ivan Serrano of the Open University of Catalonia for sharing their insights about universalism and community in the modern state. Look for us on the New, Book, New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Nena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Dr. McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.